You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme and we start uh, this morning with uh, more sad news uh, yesterday when it was confirmed that a 14-year-old boy had died in a swimming tragedy while on an afternoon out with his pals. It happened at Passage West. Stan Mooney of the Irish Sun uh, was in Passage West yesterday and she joins me uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Good morning, Patricia. And, and once again, you're welcome to the programme. Now, uh, I take it this was a day out before all the young lads headed back to school, was it? It was. It was. And that's, you know, the, the tragedy of it is that uh, uh, young Jack O'Sullivan um, from Deer Park in the, cor- in the city had travelled over with some of his friends by via bus um, to, this, to the pontoon area of Passage West. Um, he... He, it's a popular place, Patricia, for kids to actually swim off. Um, but it's also a dangerous spot, especially when the tides are running. Um, but uh, he was about two o'clock. The alarm was raised uh, when Jack um, either I believe he wasn't a great swimmer, but I think he may have either slipped into the into the water or had joined his friends and um, he struggled and had difficulties in the water. Yeah, um, you can get out of your depth very yes, quickly. Yes. Yeah. And and to uh, it, it, it's very deep there in actual fact because boats come into birth so it's actually deep, mm. you know. Um, and um, the, 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 the uh, woman in the apartment, you know, the, this big block of apartments there, um, she saw the the the, the event happening um, from her window, and she ran out and jumped in, uh, but was unable to, um, to to find him. Uh, one of his friends had struggled very, very hard to um, bring him back to the pontoon, but he slipped away and went under the water. Um, and so um, the alarm was raised, and the emergency services uh, were on the scene extremely quickly. In actual fact, um, you know, everybody was just... Um, so shocked, uh, not shocked, but happy that the yeah people spoke. Yeah, people spoke about quickly. how quickly they uh, all responded, it, and it was it was multi agency. It was it was a multi agency operation because it involved uh, the guards, um, the paramedics, um, the uh, the ribs, the the RNLI ribs um, from Crosshaven and uh, Mallow Search and Rescue were also involved as well as the, the Irish Navy divers uh, and the fire brigades from uh, the local one and Cork City Fire Brigades. So there was a huge array of activity. Um, and, of course, the um, Rescue 117 from Morsford was hovering in the skies as the search continued. Thankfully, um, at about four o'clock, um, the word started to come through to us that, um, that, he, that the divers had... Um, um, found Jack in the water and mm. um, not too far from the pontoon itself in actual fact I would say maybe about 100, 150 metres and um, then we were asked to leave because it was a sensitive moment obviously and his parents had arrived as well so we all moved away from the area um, but I was speaking to um, to one of the um, fire officers from Cork City Fire Brigade and he was saying that um, there was a tide of t- about two knots running at the time that this happened. Um, so it would indicate that, that 
you know, the water was flowing and, and ebbing and, you know, that, that unfortunately Jack, uh, who wasn't a strong swimmer, got caught up in it. And his poor parents, I mean, obviously they had to be notified that there was something going on yes. and then they had to make their way to Passage West. Yes. So they uh, were there when Jack's body was recovered? Uh, they were they were there. Um, they'd arrived shortly before, I think, before his body was recovered. Um, the boys, this is, as I said, this is a very popular spot. And um, Marcia Dalton, the local councillor, yeah. um, told me that, uh, you know, kids arrive in droves on the buses to actually um, swim off the pontoon. Um, and, uh, like, it's, it's just such a total shock because, as you know, Passage West is a very small community, small area and small community, but very close-knit community. And you could... The people had gathered outside of the, the Garda Cordon. Uh, lots of young people had gathered, many of them very distressed and very upset, um, you know, hugging each other, crying. Um, while there were also adults just, you know, waiting around to see what was happening. Yeah, because um, when, you, when you have a drowning tragedy like this, uh, Anne, it really does have a profound impact on the local community. Oh, absolutely. And even though Jack wasn't from from Passage, um, the impact of, of it was still felt throughout the entire area. Um, just just to give you a bit of background on him, um, Tricia, he was 14. Um, he was due to go into second year in Kalosta, Emma Reef in uh, Deer Park, which is quite close to him. Um, and uh, he is one of a family of six. Um, the youngest, I believe, is only about a year old. Um, he has, uh, he has, I think that's broken up with three boys and three girls. Oh my gosh! Um, and obviously they were just arriving and and having a last bit of fun before the schools reopened and they got down to the business of study. Yeah, and as every parent is, you know, their young people are heading out. You're saying, mind yourself, uh, yeah. don't be getting yeah. up to any mischief, and you know, be, behave. Yeah. You know, yeah. you could just imagine the conversation that was yeah. had beforehand. Yeah. I, I like our hearts break for the Sullivan's. This, this, just just to just to kind of fill in another piece there, Patricia. This is the area, the same area where two children fell in off the off the harbour wall um and were rescued, were were being swept out and, and were actually drowning when uh, a local man jumped in and pulled managed to pull the two of them oh, out I of the water. Remember that. It's, remember they were yeah, about five yeah. and eight. Yeah. Exactly the same spot. Wow. Um, you know, so so there there have been near misses, but this was definitely the worst tragedy to hit the area there in a long time. Yeah. Well, listen, our deepest, deepest sympathies to uh, Jack's family and to his friends and indeed to that wider community in Passage who, you know, who really are impacted uh, by this. Listen, Anne, thank you for that. Have a nice weekend and uh, thanks for joining us. Okay. Uh, Bye-bye. That is uh, Anne Mooney, who is the Southern Correspondent for the Irish uh, Sun on yet another drowning tragedy to finish off the week. It's it's truly shocking. Leaving search results a day and all of the papers are saying it's an unexpected set of bumper leaving cert uh, results. Great news for the students, but uh, it will keep CAO college points sky high again this year. And all of this follows what 
what everyone is saying was a surprise instruction by the Education Minister Norma Foley to keep overall grades in line this year with last year's outcome. The Minister's intervention, which didn't happen until July of this year, resulted in almost three quarters of all of the grades going up compared with just over a half went up last year. The post marking adjustments were made by the State Examination Commission after the exam papers were marked in the normal way. And continuing grade inflation means that the Leaving Cert results are at unprecedented high levels and this is now for the fourth successive year and obviously that has major knock-on consequences for the CAO points which will come out the first round will come out next week it could leave students with maximum points squeezed out of college courses now before people panic over that extra places particularly in the high demand degree programmes hopefully will offset some of that uh, to some extent Uh, the results will obviously bring a lot of joy though today to the 61,736 candidates who are picking up their Leaving Cert result. Candidates in schools um, can access the results online. That was from 10 o'clock this morning so they're online now. They obviously also have been posted out to the schools. Many many of the students would have done the old traditional route of going to the schools to pick them up uh, this, uh, this morning and of course schools have been asked to make arrangements to support candidates who are uh, receiving the results because there will be some who of course will be disappointed. The Minister for Education Norma Foley is extending her heartiest of congratulations to all of the students receiving the results today. But there is some criticism of uh, Norma Foley because previously she had flagged a gradual return to pre-pandemic grade levels while promising that there wouldn't be a cliff edge for the students this year. There was an expectation that there would be a modest reversal this year and that certainly hasn't happened. And it seems Norma Foley took the view that the students whose education was severely uh, disrupted because of COVID, that they deserved all of the support. The Leaving Cert um, was also for the candidates. It was their first experience of state exams because this would have been, again, one of the years that wouldn't have sat a junior search because, of course, that was cancelled for uh, two years. Now, it seems what happened was the papers were marked in the traditional way and when the results were submitted, they were lower than the equivalent raw exam results from last year. So when the Minister of Education, Norma Foley, was made was told about that in July, she uh, directed that the results for this year should be an ag- it should be the aggregate be no lower than they were last year, and that's why they uh, went up. And three quarters of the results actually uh, went up. Now the knock-on effect of it. I mean, universities uh, are looking for a reasonably quick return to the normal spread of grades because it's the universities are the ones who really have uh, most of the problems to deal with. Again, this year, they'll be forced to choose between many well-qualified applicants for the high-demand courses and the lucky applicants will be chosen by lottery or a, a random a selection, as it's called. With this, with, uh, in, when, when, you, when you go to the CAO, they say it's a random selection, but it is basically a, a lottery and that does seem unfair uh, to some of the students. The universities, of course, are worried about some students who will be on artificially inflated grades. They get a place in college, but then they'll struggle in college and they're the ones who are at risk of dropping out. Now, there's no hard data available at this stage, but there are indications from a number of colleges that that has been a problem over the last uh, number of years. So I suppose the sooner the spread of grades 
returns to some kind of normality, I think that will be the best for everyone. And it certainly will, will restore uh, public confidence in the leading cert and in the CAO. And we need that as soon as possible because you don't want artificially high all well and good if you've got very gifted students who get really, really high results, but you certainly don't want them to continue artificially high. Michael in Castletown Bear has been on about the Leaving Cert said the very best of luck to all of the students who will be receiving their results this morning. And indeed, Michael, so say all of us. He says many slept uneasy last night thinking about this morning. But please, says Michael. Accept what you get today and build your future on it and do take exceptional care when you're celebrating tonight and don't do something stupid by throwing it all away after all your years of hard slog. You are now facing your next big challenge and Michael wants to wish you all of the best for the future. Yeah, well done. And uh, and that's, what we'll, that's all we can say to all of them. The very best <coughs> going forward from uh, now and just, you know, pat yourself on the back. You've done remarkably well and it's, it, there is so much work put into uh, the Leaving Cert. 0818103103 uh, John Paul takes your calls. Just coming in from the street uh, fleet, there's a vehicle on fire on the M8 northbound reports of uh, the vehicle uh, the M8, it's the Cork Dublin Road, it's near Glanmire and people are asked to take care on approach. Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor Home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Now research from the Restaurant Association of Ireland says there is now clear demand from the public to improve the availability of public transport and a real need to increase the number of taxis in Ireland, especially at night. So to find out what is going on locally, I'm joined by Bobby Lynch, who is spokesperson for the Cork Taxi Council. Good morning to you, Bobby. Good morning, Patricia. And great, Good morning. And great to talk to you. Um, is it widely accepted that we now have less taxis today than, say, we had 10, 15 years ago? Um, we, we, we would be down in numbers, but um, the reason why there's a shortage at peak times is, is not the taxi driver's fault. It's the likes of free now that are are taking 15% off their drivers when they do a job between the hours, we say, a half one and three o'clock in the morning. And fellas won't come on their apps because they're paying 15%. And also, if, if, like, you're, this is the first time ever you hear restaurants and uh, hotels and bells looking for taxis for their staff work. Now, the reason behind that it's another problem with free now, because if I do a job in a hotel, the receptionist gets two euro out of my fare. Uh, free now gets fifteen percent. So if I if I did a job for we say worth ten euro, I'll only end up getting six fifty. Now, when it comes to the peak times, walking times, fellas turns off their lap because the streets are busy, and they'll walk the streets. No. And and I suppose, Bobby, even with the best will in the world, will there never be enough taxis at night, especially at closing time? Well, see, the problem is, CIE Bursium brings the people in. And they're not there to bring the people home. Yeah. And, play, and then they blame the taxi driver that, uh, that, it's, that there's pubs and there's restaurants closing because there's not enough for taxis. 
The only reason why pubs and restaurants are closing is that the price of a meal, the price of a drink, and the rents are too dear. It's not because of a taxi. It's not because of a taxi. Now, taxi drivers, you, taxi drivers pay to provide the public with a public service and a good service. The government don't pay nothing towards a taxi service. They crucify us. They won't put buses on the road because it'll have to come out of their pockets. And we get blamed for everything. I have to say, this isn't just a city uh, issue, uh, Bobby. We constantly hear complaints from right across the county of people saying that there just isn't enough taxis. No, that's a problem that the NTA caused. Because when the NTA took it over, they did away with the taxi radius. And that means that a taxi in Cork can apply for hire within the six miles. He couldn't apply for hire outside the six miles. And then they made, they made it a one metre area throughout the country. And Cork is now the biggest taxi metre area in, in the country. And you have, you have cars coming up from Bantry, uh, Bandon, uh, Milton, Cove, uh, Blarney, all coming in to the city. Because there's no work in the outskirts. When they're needed, then in the rural areas... They're not there. They're not there. But but I often often wonder what tourists make of it all. I mean, when you travel abroad, you expect that you're going to be able to get a a, a taxi at any hour of the day and night. Yeah, but that's a good question. But that's a question that that the transport minister should be uh, answering, not me. They're causing it. They want it done with us and then discuss what's happening with the industry, but they discuss with the people who are ruining this taxi industry. There's bases, and there's people out of work because of apps. There's bases closing in Cork. They're not there. The ones that are there are doing a good service to the Cork Taxi Co-op, satellizing them. They're doing the best they can. And yes, free you now have a free hand in doing what they want, and they, they don't put nothing into this industry. It's but is but is it up it. is it up to individual taxis to sign up with free now? Oh, it is of course. But like fellas fella are saying, we go over them. That's grand. Go over them. I, I have no problem with that. But it's the charges they're charging drivers. It's too much. Yeah, when the streets are busy, then the lads are tongue off the apps. You can't blame them. Yeah, why yeah. Pass, why pass walk? Why should a receptionist in a hotel? Get well, I, 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 I don't understand what the reasoning behind yeah. that uh, behind no. that is. But but I saw one West Cork taxi service say that uh, it, it was talking about trying to get drivers and was saying that the taxi licence exam is putting people off. Is is the exam too difficult? No, there was drivers. I'm going back a good few years ago, and there was drivers handed back their PSV when when the country picked up. They went back walking. Yeah, and then. They give up their PSVs. No, they had it. And they they were driving taxis years. No, why not give them back their license without doing a stupid test? No, an Irishman will go in and do the test and he'll probably fail it. And you have a chap that's only here 12 months or whatever, he, he, he'll pass it. They, 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 we're, we're always asking that question. No, there is lads here, farm lads, and they're doing a good job. There are taxi drivers the way we look at it. There's, there's no difference in colour. I mean, they're taxi drivers, and that's the way it should be. But the thing is, 
the lads that went back to the building, building lines and what have you. Uh, after COVID, yeah, yeah, after COVID, no, yeah, you must remember that it, there was no talk about the taxis that kept this country running through COVID. We, we they they walked they they walked day and night bringing bringing patients that had had it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Centers, and it was no talk about that. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, but unfortunately, the, we did lose taxi drivers say uh, during we, COVID. Oh my God, we lost a lot of them. And they, they, that's another thing. Their licence are gone with them. Yeah. All right. Uh, no. All right. So there, there's no there's no simple solution to it, um, Bobby. Oh, there is. There's a very simple solution. Go on. Give, give the drivers back their PSVs. Okay. All right. The ones that uh, were handed back and, 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 and let, let them transfer their players when they're returning. That would stop it. Okay. All right. Listen, Bobby, we leave it there. Thank Thank you you for that. Thanks for joining us. That is uh, Bobby Lynch, who is a spokesperson uh, for the Cork uh, Taxi Council. County Cork has now recorded the country's record number of breeding barn owls. And it's due, it seems, in no small part to extensive efforts of local Birdwatch Ireland volunteers. To talk about the success of that work, I'm joined by Niall Hatch of uh, Birdwatch Ireland. Good morning to you, Niall. Uh, you're welcome to the programme. Now, this is a real good news story for us here in Cork on a Friday. Roughly how many nesting boxes were installed and where have they been installed? Well, it's actually been quite wide throughout the county and indeed throughout throughout Munster. Munster is now the real stronghold for barn owls. So some of them nest in the boxes, some nest in, in, in some natural sites that are fewer and further between these days. But we're, we're, we're talking, um, we're talking hopefully in excess of, of 100 pairs in the area and around that part of Munster. It's very hard to pin them all down, but it's been a big success, as you said, thanks in no small part to the wonderful volunteers who've been out doing this work. So it's um, nice, as you said, to have a, a good news story yeah. um, on a Friday. And, and how many nesting sites would there have been up to when the volunteers started going out and installing the boxes? Well, it, it, it depends. So historically, the barn owl would have been a common bird in Ireland. It, it's, a, it's a widespread species. There's a lot of uh, folk memory of it in many areas. A lot of people would have known it as the Late Late Show. Owl, yeah. It was obviously featured in that programme a lot. Um, so if you went back, historically, it would have been a very common widespread bird across Ireland. It's thought actually that the um, the, the origin of the, of, the, of the myth of the banshee comes from the barn owl, this ghostly figure in the sky making this screaming noise. However, um, <laughs> habitat loss and issues with poison, particularly rat poisons, caused them, caused them a big, big issue. Um, and so we knew we had to tackle those two key problems. So with the lack of nesting sites, because the, the species likes to nest inside barns, as the name would suggest, and, and other agricultural buildings, but also in old ruined castles and, and, and churches and, and places like that. And um, modern farm buildings had fewer spaces for them. A lot of those old ruins became too ruined and they were no longer suitable for them. So we knew that putting up nest boxes would have a, would have a big effect and um, then it could at least provide nesting sites for them. And then working with farmers and landowners and with other groups to try and minimise and uh, the use of, of rat poisons where, where appropriate and to let the barn owls be the control on the rats and mice because they're the most effective rodenticide that we have. So um, it's, got, it's only gone up quite rapidly. We don't have exact figures for how many there were before but we're going up from maybe, maybe a few dozen pairs up to, to a massive increase on that. So That's I'm really brilliant. delighted to, to, it's to br- it's br- And, and um, was I right in my introduction in saying a lot of this work is down to volunteers? 
Oh, very much so. Yes. Um, so um, b- b- volunteers with, with the Bardo Charm branches, we have, we have, we have, um, we have two branches in Cork. We have our Cork branch and our West Cork branch. We have volunteers in, in local communities. We've been also working a lot with uh, with uh, tidy towns groups and men's sheds groups, for example, um, uh, with that. And there's lots of other um, volunteers working independently with other organisations who are sharing knowledge and we're all working together to, to do what we can to try and, and restore these magnificent birds to their rightful place in the Irish countryside. So it really seems to be working, which is great. And do I take it farmers are particularly happy to, to welcome them back? I mean, I, I take it it's great for them not to have to need to use rat poison. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and quite a few farmers have told us that they've been able to stop using rat poison completely now because the barn owls coming back into, the, into their area have really done a remarkable job of clearing out those rodents. Um, obviously, there's sort of a, a transition period. But the problem with it is, of course, you see when, when, when a barn owl eats a poisoned rodent, um, it takes that poison into its own system. And that doesn't necessarily kill it outright. It could if it's got a particularly heavy dose. Um, but more, more often what happens is the, the barn owl feels weaker, um, less, it's less fit, less able to care for its chicks uh, and also it turns out more likely to, to take the easy option of hunting along the sides of, of motorways and dual carriageways where it's likely to be hit by cars and um, so that's um, that's the impact that the poison has had on them we know that working with a lot of landowners now you know the the, the, the mantra is that the barn owl is the far, the original farmer's friend it's, mm. it's, there's absolutely no downside to this bird whatsoever it's it's an entirely positive creature to have around it does a great job for the farmer it's beautiful to look at and something lovely mysterious you know wonderfully mysterious and wild about them and we're also you know we were also talking as well about the importance of other birds of prey in the ecosystem the, the barn owls are hard to see because they're, they're nocturnal so they're out at night we don't see them that often uh, another bird of prey that i'm sure that a lot of uh, your listeners will have would have noticed in recent times is a, a day flying bird of prey called the buzzard a large hawk that's often seen circling high in the sky particularly on warm days it makes it sound a bit like a, a distant mewing cat is how i describe its call and they also like to hunt uh, rats they like to eat rabbits they like to eat crows and that's a bird that was absent from cork and indeed for most of the country for a very long time but in recent years it started to have a big resurgence it's come back it's now breeding quite widely across the county again and that's also playing a role in reducing the the roads and trying to restore this this natural balance it's brilliant and if food supply is increased for owls thanks to the arrival of a new species something called a white toothed shrew <laughs> Yes, a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. The greater white-toothed shrew. Um, so this is a species that isn't native to Ireland. It is native and quite widespread to a lot of continental Europe, although not to Britain. Uh, we're not quite sure how it arrived in Ireland, but it may well have been uh, perhaps um, shrews because they're very small. It may have been in, 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 the, in the roots of uh, trees that were imported for planting or for some other horticultural products. Uh, and um, it has started to spread quite rapidly. It was actually my, um, my brother and colleague, John Lusby, through his barn owl research that first identified this species in Ireland. Uh, owls, they can't, when they when they swallow a, a small mammal, they can't digest all the bones and the hair and the teeth. So what they do is they regurgitate them in the form of a pellet. Uh, and when you can analyse those pellets and find out what they've been eating. And John found these unusual jaw bones um, in, this, uh, in these pellets, which turned out to be from this new species, I'm sure it was new for Ireland at least. So um, yes, it seems the barn owls are, are feeding on those. One of the, the advantages that has had for the, for the barn owls is that shrews are less likely to come into contact with rat poison. They will contact us sometimes, but they're, they're less attracted um, to, to rat poison because they're insect eaters, so that's mainly what they would feed on. Um, however, it's not all good news with that uh, with, with that shrew because, um, you know, it's always a concern when a non-native species, mm-hmm. an alien invasive species, gets established and it is causing serious problems for our native shrew, the pygmy shrew, an absolutely tiny little mammal, uh, and it seems that it has a very hard time coping when um, these greater white-toothed shrews arrive in an area and it pushes them out completely. So we've seen massive falls in the, uh, the populations and, and 
distribution of these um, native pygmy shrews. So there are winners and losers in this case. It's not all good news, um, but certainly for the barn owls, it certainly seems to be a positive occurrence. Somebody's wondering, has the weather, how have the barn owls coped with the weather that we've had uh, this year? I mean, we were very warm at the start of the summer, but then, you know, it, it, it's been wet since. Is, would, would that affect the barn owl in any way? It certainly can. Warm weather is pretty good for them, um, especially if it means that there's quite a lot of rodent activity at night. Um, warmer nights mean that the rodents may be more active. Um, obviously, when it rains, though, if we have very inclement weather, lots of, of, of rain or um, or wind, it's harder for the barn owls to find food. Um, they can fly in the rain, but obviously their prey is less likely to be out in the open. It's harder for them to hear it as well. Barn owls hunt mainly by by hearing. They have, up, they have, they have excellent eyesight, and they're, they're very good at that too. But even in pitch darkness, they can locate prey by listening for it their, their hearing is very acute they have actually one of their ears is slightly higher in their skull than the other and um, which means that there's a tiny fractions of a second of a difference in the sound in the time it takes the sound to reach one ear or the other and from that they can pinpoint exactly where a little squeaking uh, rat or mouse is on the ground um, and it's absolutely amazing but of course if there's lots of noise and there's lots of uh, inclement weather especially if there's lots of rain that yeah. they're, they're flying that that does have an impact so you want to have it the best occasion there would be a relatively settled summer they can handle a bit of rain but not too much all right. And obviously that warm weather that and that nice dry weather that we had in May and June, that would have been good for them building their nests and, and getting ready to hatch. Uh, yes, that, that's right. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, the, the, the fact is that when they have eggs and chicks, if the weather happens to be particularly cold, that makes it harder for them to incubate those eggs and for the chicks to keep themselves warm. So uh, so warm, warm weather certainly certainly helps them. And it's a species that's found all over the planet, including in tropical regions. So it's a species, we know, that can handle the heat quite well, unlike a lot of other birds, which um, are maybe worse affected by climate change. It seems that barn owls are more resilient when it comes to, to the ambient temperature. Um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, you know they, 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 they seem to be able to cope with whatever the Irish, uh, the Irish summer can throw at them. Okay, like all of us, we just have to get on with it. <laughs> uh, and, and just where we have you, uh, Niall, reading in the papers today, another sort of a good news story when it comes to birds. I know this story is coming out from uh, Ulster Wildlife. Um, evidence of ospreys have been, been bred in Ireland for the first time in more than 200 years. Yes, it really is great news. It is. This is another bird of prey that uh, was once widespread in Ireland, but was um, persecuted in this case to extinction. It was shot and poisoned uh, for no good reason. Um, it's a wonderful bird to have in the environment. Um, and it's just been announced that they bred successfully, as you said, for the first time in over 200 years in County Fermanagh this year. Now, Fermanagh, um, it's full of lakes. It's an absolute paradise for a fish-eating bird of prey like an osprey because their main their main diet is fish. Um, so it's really good to see that happening. And this is coupled with, um, you know, at, at the moment uh, here, here in the Republic of Ireland, the National Parks and Wildlife Service is well underway with them um, starting its um, reintroduction campaign for the osprey as well. So um, they have um, young birds, young ospreys that have been um, provided by the government of Norway. And they, I believe in the, in the coming days and weeks, they're going to be released at certain sites in the Republic of Ireland. And they hopefully will then join the population and help to, to, to boost the genetic diversity of ospreys on, on this island. Ospreys are unusual for a bird of prey because they migrate. So um, in just a few weeks time, those ospreys will be heading to sub-Saharan Africa and then hopefully will return again next summer to breed. So it's, it's really good that finally the species has started to nest again. Um, we've seen in other species that the common crane, so sadly no longer common here, has also been confirmed nesting um, in the Midlands of Ireland um, uh, this summer as well. For the second year in a row, having been absent uh, for, for over 300 years. So that is good to see those, those birds coming back. A long way to go before the populations would be restored to what they used to be, but still it's all very positive. Yeah, they're all tiny steps, but well, they're all tiny steps in the right direction. Listen, and Niall, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for that and have a lovely weekend. 
You too, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, bye-bye. That is uh, Niall Hatch of uh, Birdwatch Ireland. And well done to all of those volunteers in Cork who have worked so hard uh, erecting all of those special nesting boxes throughout the county and it really has uh, paid off. It's a terrific news story. 0818 103 103. I've just spotted a text in. Let's give it a shout out as a word of uh, warning. Uh, somebody says, Patricia, would you please warn people there are two very bad potholes and they are on the Danos side of the arches in Mallow. If you're driving in that area, please drive with extreme care because this listener reckons the potholes are so bad they could actually do damage to your car. So that's on the Danos side of the arches in Mallow. 0818 103 103. Ireland versus South Africa. People getting very, very excited about some really great rugby matches uh, coming up. But this is the one that we've selected. It's at the Stade de France on the 23rd of uh, September and we have got return flights, we've got three nights accommodation in Paris and uh, we've got gold category match tickets and those gold category match tickets they actually come with hospitality and we want to get you and a partner along to Paris to watch Ireland take on South Africa. It is your chance to win what is the ultimate rugby experience. Now next Monday morning with Ken at 8.15 Ken is going to have all of the details of how you can win what is a terrific prize. So listen here to win your way to the Stade de France for Ireland versus South Africa and hopefully we'll get the result that we're all praying for. Uh, But you can find out more next Monday morning at 8.15 only on C103. Congratulations to the Leaving Cert results uh, day to all of the students. Whatever happened to the maths paper that there was so much controversy about back in June? Remember that one of the papers was extremely difficult and students came out in tears. Well, the State Examinations Commission have confirmed that it altered its draft marking system for that higher level maths paper one following the concerns over the difficulty of the papers. And they say the process resulted in a marking scheme that was uh, at the more lenient end end of the normal range but when you're looking at the number of H1s and H2s that were awarded this year, they were down significantly down on what they were last year. Under 11% of candidates got a H1 which is the top mark this year and that compared to uh, 18% of the candidates who got it last year but they do say that they marked it significantly more lenient than they would have on a previous year so hopefully the students who wanted the results that they were expecting that they got them. Some of your thoughts and comments coming in. We are in a couple of minutes going to be talking about the Naval Service and the problem that the Naval Service have, it seems to be a recruitment problem. God knows we we have this across all of our Defence Forces, don't we, at the moment but it seems now particularly acute with the Naval Service. Michael says our Naval, Naval Service personnel, which is made up of seamen or sailors, are at an all-time I'm low. Michael says due to a lot of factors up for consideration, wages, conditions and many other things of Michael, man in the know, but he said I can't mention here. He said it should be the greatest honour of any young man or woman to serve for his or her country, but they should be equally rewarded for doing so. It should be compulsory, says Michael, to serve a number of years after leaving school, be that either on land or sea, would it not give young people a much larger vision of life? And, and there is um, compulsory 
uh, Army and Navy and Air Force in other countries. We've never had it in this country. Would would it be the makings of some young men and women? I wonder. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. I just I don't know if it, the compulsory aspect of it if that sits well uh, with me. But with the way our numbers are in the Gardaí, in the Army, and in the Navy, I, I take it everything is going to be on the table. I haven't seen that. Um, thanks for that, Michael. I haven't seen that primetime program. I did see some people uh, tweeting about it or Xing about it. I don't know what you meant to say now about Twitter seeing it's changed to X. Are we meant to say Xing about it? Anyway, I saw people, some people tweeting uh, about it. And, and particularly, I saw there was one I thought quite a poignant uh, tweet in from someone who's married to somebody in Angarda Siakona uh, saying, you know, that every day her husband goes out, you know, her heart's kind of in her mouth hoping he'll come back safe. But there was a primetime programme, I think, showing the reason why some Gardaí have decided to leave. And it seems to be worth a watch, judging by, say, some of the commentary that's on social media. I don't know if people watch that or not uh, during the week, but we do have uh, a recruitment, but we have a retention crisis across our defence forces as well. We'll be talking about the Navy, as I say, in a couple of minutes. Um, Then we mentioned that very sad drowning in passage that's led a mum to say, Patricia, such sad news from Passage West uh, yesterday. As the mother of three, I have two boys, uh, both of them attending swimming lessons. One is 11 and the other is seven. Now, my 11-year-old absolutely loves the water, loves to go to the beach, etc. And has started pier jumping on holidays with his cousins. He doesn't see, at 11, he doesn't see any danger in it. He also thinks he's a great swimmer. As for me, well, I simply can't swim. I think... I I've been thinking now for a long time, should there not be a bit of theory slash education on water safety when young children attend swim classes? Is that something that could be introduced? Yeah. And remember, Water Safety Ireland, they do water safety classes. Maybe it's something that you might consider for your 11 year old. I don't know. At seven, is the seven year old too young for But Maybe the 11 year old. I don't know what age you can start water safety classes, but it might be something worth thinking about. But yeah, when you get young boys and girls, they think they absolutely think they're they're invincible for sure and your heart's probably in your mouth particularly the fact that you say you can't swim yourself thank you for your text to 0862 103 103 and Jim wants to know why is petrol and diesel going up so much at the moment Uh, wondering has other people noticed petrol and diesel going up all the time Uh, Jim travelled to the UK in June and in August this year and he said there's not much of a difference in the price over in the UK between June and August he said it was a similar price but he said here in Ireland we've seen it increase over the summer. He said certainly it's gone up by at least 20 cent a litre uh, which is not all government tax therefore Jim is asking are the oil companies in garages, are they price gouging and Jim is fearful that they are okay. Well there's a couple of reasons why the price of petrol and diesel uh, is going up. Firstly on the government we can lay some of the blame at the government, the excise duties I'll take you back to March of last year when prices were close to uh, two litres if not already at two litres. Can I say that heading towards that uh, again. So the decision was taken by the government to do an intervention and they reduced the price of petrol and and diesel by reducing excise uh, duty. Now they reduced it with the promise that it would go back up. They did extend it. I think it was to go, it was to be for a year. I think it was to be from March uh, 2022 to March 2023. But they did extend it then on to uh, May of uh, 2023. But anyway, they started reintroducing the excise duty, for example, on the 1st of June 
June, uh, petrol and diesel started uh, to go back up in June. Petrol went up by six cent and diesel five uh, cent of the excise duty went back back up. And Jim, I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but the 1st of September, which is someday next week, the rates will go up further. An extra seven cent will go on petrol and there will be five cent on uh, diesel. And that's not the last of it. The, the, there will be a third increase on the excise duty, which will then fully restore it to the original levels. And that will come in on the 31st of August with an extra eight cent for petrol and six cent for uh, diesel. So that's one of the explanations for some of the increase. But then for the garages themselves, uh, putting up the uh, prices, I saw the AA Uh, They obviously do the monthly check. They follow and watch uh, the petrol and diesel prices. And they say that the the rise in the price of Brent crude oil and the that's on the world market. That's what sets the price then is at for this month, it's at $86 a barrel. And that's the highest it's been this year with the expectation that it will head. It should level out at about $90 a barrel by the end of the year. There's also been a jump in raw materials increasing steadily over the last uh, few months. It should be topping out now, but it has been one of the reasons why there has been increases at the petrol pumps, the garages themselves say they have to set the price you know on what they buy it in as and that's why on Monday they could be set at one price and suddenly you go back on Wednesday and it's gone up again if they got a fill of oil between Monday and Wednesday it's whatever price they buy it in as they they have to set but there will be definitely further increases from next week from the 1st of September with that extra 7 cent on petrol and 5 cent on uh, diesel and I know Jim that's not the news that you're going to want to hear today but I think everybody and it's starting it's creeping very close to that two euro a, a litre, which is kind of ironic because the, the two euro a litre was the price where it was at in March of 2022 when the government says, look, we've got a cost of living crisis. Let's try and give motorists a bit of a break. And that's why they moved in and gave the reduction on the excise duty on petrol and uh, diesel. Uh, and, you know, so it's part of me is thinking, you know, government, come on, you've got to be watching. You've got to be seeing what the prices are like at the petrol pumps. Why are you reinstating the excise duties? Can you not hold off on them? Because let's be honest, it isn't the case that the government need the money. They were constantly hearing every time the tax returns come in that they're better than what they had had been expected. There's higher VAT coming in. There's definitely higher excise duty uh, coming in because the excise duty, of course, is, is set on, on the price. So they get an increase on that. And then you pay VAT on top of it. And if the price of the petrol pumps goes up, it means we pay more VAT. So the government get more take on that. Uh, We have a, a full economy. We've never had so many people out of work so there's extra money uh, coming in on private taxation. And then, of course, the, the big one, the corporation tax that has been booming and continues to boom, even though there's always a warning over that, that day could end. But it hasn't ended yet. So they are awash with money. So there, it, it, there is, they have a bit of wriggle room. It's not a case that we are, you know, that the government are desperately scrambling to get money into the, stech, the exchequer. So they could ease off on the excise duty. And it'll be ironic if they put back on the excise duty. Duty, and then it goes up to the two euro mark are over 
worse still. And then they'll have to come back out and reduce them again. It's not, it certainly won't make sense to me. But variety of reasons, it, the barrel of oil has increased on the world market and we know that sets the price on top of the government reintroducing the excise uh, duties. 0818103103. John in Clannacilty says uh, Patricia Petrol and Diesel went up 12 to 15 cent just in the last two weeks and that is in uh, West uh, Cork. Absolutely crazy, says John. C103 Jobs. An experienced part-time housekeeper is wanted for immediate start in Mallow. Now, you do need to have your own transport. Uh, the, you can send a CV to info at Longeville House in Mallow or you can call them at 022 47156. A snagger with carpentry background is wanted for work in tower. You need to have your own tools, safe pass and manual handling. 087-165-0527. Part-time rigid truck driver is wanted to work in Cork City for Cork to Dublin and local work. Call 087-2755365. And five experienced cleaners are wanted to work in the North Cork area. Own transport will be an advantage email uh, info at everfreshsolutions.com You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now the Navy has been forced to place two more of its ships on what they call operational reserve and that's due to its staffing crisis, which means the Navy has been left with just two vessels to patrol the waters in Ireland's exclusive economic zone. Senator Gerard Crockwell is a former defence officer of the former Defence Forces member and uh, Gerard joins me this morning. Good morning to Gerard. Good morning, and, Patricia, and good morning to your listeners. And you're, you're welcome. We are an island nation, uh, Gerard. How will two vessels be able to monitor our waters properly? Well, I'll, I'll start my answer by saying we're an absolute disgrace. Um, we cannot possibly cover our waters. It would be difficult to cover our waters with all eight uh, of the main ships and the two recently purchased smaller ships um, that were purchased from New Zealand. We're off buying hardware and we can't pay the men and women we expect to use that. With the result, they are walking out of the service, uh, literally climbing over one another to get out the gate. We have destroyed the defence forces and uh, the the current government and the last government have a lot to answer for. And these vessels, uh, Gerard, cost a lot of money. It, isn't it such a waste to have them not in use? You're in Cork right now, people looking out their windows over Hall Bolan uh, or people driving past Hall Bolan can see the ships tied up. We are talking about hundreds of millions of euros tied up while drug lords are bringing drugs in through our coast, while people traffickers are bringing people in through our coast, while our data cables and our fisheries are no longer protected. We are the laughingstock of Europe. And it's really sad. And, and is it simply a payment 
issue that we can't, we don't seem to be able to recruit. But worse than that, the issue you've 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 spoken about the retention problem uh, in the navy. I mean, is it simply down to pay? It's pay is is it's a huge part of it. But you know, the the world we live in is a vastly different world to the world that I lived in when I served in the Defence Forces. People now have families. We always had families, but family life has changed. The sharing and uh, and caring uh, requires parents to be at home more often. We also need to do things that would improve the morale of people. It's a very sad reflection on the fact that the last chief of staff was a naval officer and the Navy is in crisis. It's a very sad reflection that both ministers of defence over the last 12 odd years uh, have both come from Cork, where the naval service was across the water from them, where they could see it every day and they could see it falling apart. And frankly, I don't think anybody cares in government and I don't think the public really are uh, tied into what's happening in defence at the moment. Because this isn't just a problem uh, within the Navy. I mean, we have a problem with uh, recruitment and retention in the Gardaí and in the Army. Absolutely. And if you even look further, the fire service is in crisis. Yeah. Uh, the the health service is in crisis, particularly when we look at the uh, nursing grades and the like. Uh, we really have, we talk about being the wealth, one of the wealthiest countries in Europe. We talk about a surplus of 11 billion uh, coming into the coffers of government this year. And yet our frontline services are falling apart. And the grand tradition of military service in Cork, they've closed most of the barracks and by and large there's very few people coming in and despite the fact that people like myself, Carl Berry, the representative groups, Mark Keane, your president of PD4 from Cork, have been shouting for years that this was coming down the line. Government simply would not listen. No matter what we did, they would not listen. Minister Coveney I don't know how many times we met him at committee and we tried to convince him that things were going skewways and nothing has happened. The Secretary General of the Department has not uh, been held accountable. We appointed an Assistant Secretary General specifically for looking after people and recruitment. Nothing has happened. We are an absolute laughingstock right across Europe, privately, Ambassadors from all over Europe are speaking to myself and speaking to Cahal Berry and to anybody that will listen and saying to us, we are really worried about the state of the Irish defence system. Wow. And, you know, I was I was reading about, you know, why we're losing, uh, you know, we're, we're losing so many experienced non-commissioned officers, engineers, marine uh, specialists, but it seems they can earn far more in the private sector. That A lot of that is to do with the growth of offshore wind energy and, and obviously cruise uh, liners. It's understandable if they can earn more in the private sector and possibly their conditions of work are better. Absolutely. I agree with you, Patricia. But look, they, we, we, we talk and we see frequently stories about gangs like the Kinahan gang bringing drugs into the country. Do we care enough to make it difficult for these criminals to operate in our coastal waters? I believe we do not. We have engaged in a, a process of buying shiny new ships. For what? We have nobody to sail them. If the issue is competition from the private sector, then we have to be able to compete in that field. 
and we can compete in the soldiers and sailors do not join for the money and i know that you will have contact directly yourself with members of the forces down in cork yeah. uh, they don't necessarily join for the money a lot of them join for an awful lot of other reasons but if you can't afford to live with your wife and children, if you cannot afford to give your family a quality of life, then sadly, the number of people I meet from the Naval Service who are heartbroken that they're being forced to leave because they simply have to take care of their families. Yeah, because uh, I, I, I certainly know here in Cork, and I, I imagine it's all over the country, there in some families it's a tradition. Do you know, people are following absolutely. fathers and grandfathers. Yeah, absolutely. And Cork is very unique in this area because Cork has had the naval service since the foundation of the state. Uh, and Cork has had fine barracks in Fermoy, uh, uh, in Cork City. Uh, and slowly but surely, we have eroded it all. It's all gone. It's all um, in the name of, I don't know, saving money. And are we saving money at the end of the day? No, we're not. Just look at the news today. 15 million spent on consultants for the HSE. I don't know how many consultants have been involved in the naval service or in the defence forces in general, or if there are any consultants. I just don't think they care. The tradition of military service, regardless of whether you're Cork, Galway, Kilkenny, uh, Dundalk, it doesn't matter, Finner Camp and Donegal, the tradition is being lost. And you're dead right. Fathers, grandfathers, uh, sons. Uh, I, I, I know of families where three of the family are involved, one sister, two brothers. Uh, and they all went in after their father, who went in after his father. So there is a tradition yeah. and we're losing it. Um, well, yeah. uh, and I was reading on the one of the papers this morning uh, and uh, Michael O'Sullivan was quoted. He is a former head of the EU frontline agency tasked with combating the Atlantic cocaine trade. And he said the traffickers have their own intelligence system and when they learn of cuts to the naval strength, uh, they'll target uh, ships. And he says we'll be exp- they'll exploit the maritime gaps. They, that's what they will do. Absolutely. And the thing about it is, is it might sound fanciful, but actually drug smugglers are now using submarines. Uh, there's been a submarine arrested in, in, in Spain for bringing in drugs. And the problem is our Navy, we can't see what's under the sea because we don't have sonar. There is no investment in people, no investment in the right type of hardware. And at the end of the day, what I would ask your listeners, Patricia, OK, but most people are sort of indifferent to defence. It's a sort of a an out their thing. Uh, We don't really need it. A lot of people would say we're not at war with anybody and unlikely to be at war. We are at war every day of the week in the drugs world. Do we want our children having free access to drugs? Because that's what we're doing. We're opening the gates and we're saying, come on in, lads, nobody is watching. Our Gardaí are falling apart again for similar reasons, which means that on land you don't have the same level of cover as you would have expected. We really need the public to contact their local TDs and say to them, enough is enough. You've got to start putting the frontline services back to where they were. Okay, John and Cove is pointing the finger of blame at the EU for the shrinking of the Irish naval services. He feels the EU wants to bring in a large European army and navy that would patrol all of the European borders. Can the EU be blamed in any way for this? 
This is an old chestnut that has been going around for many, many years. Uh, first and foremost, there is no capacity to create an EU army because an army needs an independent intelligence service and the members of the European Union will never, ever, ever uh, forego their own intelligence service for some third party intelligence services that they don't have control over. So that's the EU army gone out of the way. The more important issue that he makes, and I, I'm actually uh, an advocate of it, we need to come together as a, a, a European Union. And what we need is we need naval ships from as far south as Portugal and as far north as Norway, patrolling our joint seas. So Irish Navy could be up patrolling Norway and the Spanish Navy could be patrolling Irish seas. It doesn't matter. What we need is cooperation amongst like-minded states to put an end to the criminality that exists in our seas. On today. the high seas, yeah, yeah. Because I was thinking, particularly when I was listening to that, uh, you know, uh, former... Uh, frontline agency, you know, tasked with combating uh, the cocaine trade. I was thinking from an EU uh, level, um, you know, if we're not able to maintain uh, marine security, I mean, surely the EU would be very worried about this because this has implications. If drugs are coming into this country, you know, no matter how much they bring in, they won't be all used in this country, but it's, it's an access, it's a way of getting them into the EU. So, I mean, surely the, the other European countries will be worried if we don't have proper maritime security. Well, I can tell you, uh, hand on heart, myself and Carl Berry, my colleague, ex-Defence Forces as well, met by ambassadors from all of the European countries, all of them expressing their concern and their deep concern at the lack of commitment to defence, at the lack of commitment to the policing of our seas, at the lack of commitment to being part of the wider European family that ensures our fisheries, our data communications cables, um, our people smuggling and drug smuggling are all being monitored all of the time. Sad fact of the matter is, somebody rang me this morning and told me the, the naval ship on patrol at the moment is in Galway. If it's in Galway docks, the dock gates only opens twice a day, which means it's not at sea. Uh, which means, you know, I understand they have to do visits to ports, but at the end of the day, how are we monitoring things? Our air corps is in pieces. We, we, we simply can't put together uh, a decent squad for our air corps. Investment, Patricia, is the only way forward. And it wouldn't, to get the naval service back up and running, we estimate that uh, it would cost roughly four million to pay uh, allowances that would keep sailors in the Navy. Roughly four million. And nobody is listening. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to, to take any action. Someone says, and I don't, I don't know if this is rather tongue in cheek, are there actually series? Says, look, let's just pack in the Navy and ask the British to patrol our waters like what they're doing with the RAF and they are helping to patrol our skies. Just hand it all away. Uh, you know, one of the things that bother me is the number of what we might qualify as nationalists who say to me, that that's the solution. I'm absolutely horrified. We spent 800 years trying to become an independent state. And the truth of the matter is we are no more independent today than we were 100 years ago. We are reliant. You know, we have this massive view of ourselves as boxing above our weight and being loved in the international world as great peacekeepers and uh, honourable people. We are the laughing stock of the world. Everybody is talking about what's going on, but sadly, nobody is listening. 
Mial Martin is Minister for Defence, but he is a part-time minister. His main job is foreign affairs. He might get to defence one day or a half day a week. His main job is foreign affairs, and he does an excellent job in foreign affairs. We need a standalone Alone, minister yeah. for defence. Actually, I can see a number of people are saying that that's that, that's what's needed uh, in this country. Eugene Clannacilty says, very interesting interview that you're having at the moment uh, on the Navy. I was wondering what a French war vessel is doing close to the mizzen head. Uh, is it patrolling Irish waters, says Eugene from West Cork. Not not really. I don't believe there is any agreement in place to allow any nation uh, patrol Irish waters, but there is a maritime law that allows all naval ships to pass uh, unimpeded through interna- or through national waters. Um, so the, the French Navy may very well be sailing up our coast, but the Russians are probably sailing down it and the Americans are probably sailing towards us. Uh, that's perfectly normal behaviour. There is no agreement in place at this point in time to patrol our waters. There has been an EU ship uh, used in recent past to do fisheries, but that's all they can do is fisheries patrols. And by the way, the fisheries officers that are on those ships get paid around about €167 uh, for their their overnight on a ship, whereas a sailor gets Thirty, uh, sorry, sixty euros before tax, roughly thirty euros for the same night. So there's something terribly wrong. Ridiculous. Okay, and uh, Jim, listening to us at Shannon Airport, says this is your discussion on the navy and the lack of government support. The search and rescue service contract has been given to Bristow, an American company, costing forty million more than the existing service provided by CPC. No comment from anyone. Valerie Handley of the Mail on Sunday did an excellent piece uh, recently, and that's from Jim in Shannon Airport. Yeah, Jim is wrong. I, I have been two and a half years trying to get the government to understand uh, the of the rescue contract. Rescue contract has just been signed. is for eight hundred million over ten years. Uh, there are a number of questions that arise for us. Okay, just just move your phone ever. Have, just just move ever so slightly. You're just breaking up on us, and and you're making an important point, and I want to hear it. Okay, go again. Sorry, Patricia. Yeah, okay. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect now, yeah. Okay, so the search and rescue contract has just been signed by Eamon Ryan. It's for 800 million over 10 years. Uh, The helicopter that the company intended to use, Augusta Westing, won it. Now, the Irish Air Corps put in a bid to run part of search and rescue using the AW189 and they were told that aircraft is unsuitable for Irish conditions. Just awarded a contract but the important thing is we could buy those aircrafts and have them for 30 years and it would only be dropping the ocean of that 800 million worth. So effectively we have bought the last search and rescue of five uh, Sikorsky S-92s for that company and when that contract ends they take those helicopters away. What a waste. Okay, I'm, go- for them. I'm going to leave it there because we are starting to break up but listen um, I've really enjoyed our chat and I can see a lot of uh, listeners have enjoyed it uh, too no doubt it's something we will return to again but in the meantime Senator Gerard uh, Crockwell always a pleasure to talk to you thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Yeah. 
Thank you. Good morning to you. That is uh, Jared, who is a former uh, Defence Forces member himself. So he, he really is a man uh, in uh, the know. And somebody said, I've seen it firsthand, uh, the attitude for a few Navy personnel, and it really is not uh, good at all. 0818103103. John Paul taking your calls. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to cmig.ie email patricia now with your story or comment cork today at c103.ie today on C103. I'm going to call this out to see, I don't know how many other parents are having issues with this, but a mum or a dad, a parent has contacted us. Patricia, you're probably sick and tired of this, but I'm wondering, could you get clarity from the Patrician Academy in Mallow as to why parents have to buy Chromebook this year? The cost is €260, along with added books to add to all the books that the pupils brought last year. This is for a second year student and it's not making a lot of sense to a lot of us parents. Maybe you could contact the school, get on to the principal who might be able to explain. Now we have reached out to the Patrician Academy to see if they can explain to us uh, what is going on. And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit confused as to you have to buy the Chrome book along with added books to add to the books from uh, last year. Now, I don't know if this is a problem specific to the Patrician Academy in Mallow. Are there other parents listening who have a son or daughter going into second year? And is the same thing happening in your school where you've been asked to pay €260 Euro to buy this Chrome book uh, added, adding to the books that were already purchased last year. If anybody else has, has a comment or an opinion on that, get on to us, please. But as I say, we have reached out to the Patrician Academy in Mallow and uh, hopefully they will get back to us because I think a lot of the schools, a lot of the first years started going back today and there was some, I spotted some first year students back yesterday as well. So a lot of the schools are, they've kind of a soft opening. They go back over a number of days before they'll all fully return uh, next year, uh, next week should I say not next year 0818 103 103 time for this and we're stronger when together ours to protect brought to you by C103 the IBI and funded by the Commission Naman with the television license fee check out ours to protect.ie for more info this week on Ours to Protect, we speak to the Irish Bee Conservation Project. A group of volunteers were working to increase the survival of all species of native Irish bees. The IBCP was established to provide information to communities regarding bee habitat requirements and to increase the survival of all species of native Irish bees through research, ecology support and biodiversity protection. Elaine Crowley is a volunteer with the charity group. It's an actual charity now. We got charity status uh, last year, was it? And uh, we just, I suppose, are a group of people who are passionate about the environment and protecting our biodiversity and we uh, try and create awareness around our pollinators and the importance of them and the importance of biodiversity in general and just try and get community involvement try and provide habitat for the pollinators we try and run educational groups and uh, create awareness among the general public. Irish bees are under severe pressure. Three native species have already gone extinct and more than half of the remaining species are in decline. 
There were several reasons for declining numbers. A loss of biodiversity, which means less food and habitats, overuse of pesticides and an invasive honeybee parasite called the varroa mite all contribute. Vicky Knight is a conservationist who explains the importance of bees. You need bees in order to pollinate, so we need that for food, but also to sustain um, biodiversity in general. So... Um, certain types of bees pollinate certain types of plants so without full range of different species some plants wouldn't get pollinated so without bees you don't have wildflowers and you know trees can't be pollinated either and we need trees to breathe you know so it's they're incredibly important and how many different types of species of bees would be so it's over a hundred. Yeah, it keeps changing because obviously we're finding, you know, new species. So around 102, everyone's familiar with the honeybee, and that's just one species. So um, I think it's 20, 21 bumblebee species, um, which are incredibly important. So bumblebees do something called buzz pollination. So without bumblebees, you wouldn't have strawberries. Um, so they they go to the plant and they buzz, and that makes the plant release the pollen. So again, it's really important to have the different species and then you have the rest of them are um, solitary bees. So they don't necessarily have colonies um, like the social bumblebees and honeybees. So yeah, they're incredibly important and we're just trying to, you know, get more awareness and get people to care about them. The All-Ireland Pollinator Plan is a new five-year roadmap that aims to help bees other pollinating insects and our wider biodiversity. The group was set up due to the threat of extinction of a third of the wild bee species. They liaise with local authorities, businesses, farmers, communities, gardeners and more and provide them with a clear roadmap for managing our landscape to support pollinating insects. The formation of the group meant Ireland became one of the first countries in Europe to address the issue. Dr Una Fitzpatrick is a senior ecologist with National Biodiversity Centre in Ireland. We want pollinators to be able to survive and thrive across the whole island. Um, and the idea of the pollinator plan is to tell everyone how they can help if they want to. And anyone who has any responsibility for a piece of land from the smallest one to box the biggest farm can help. And I suppose that's what we've been trying to do within the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan is just to coordinate that and encourage people to get involved if they're interested. And what can you do in your own back garden to help the bees? You know, people go out and buy wildflower seeds, but actually the best thing you can do is just leave some wild spaces in your garden. If you have a lawn, give over even a tiny little, little patch of it and let it go wild and you will see the, the amazing increase in, in butterflies, bees, just biodiversity in general, you know. So it's worth experimenting and just cut down on the spraying if possible. The best thing to do is to plant native um, native obviously flowers and and trees you can get non-native trees and and plants that are are good for pollinators but um, native is always better because things like butterflies and moths they um, have evolved with our native trees so they will feed on the leaves so certain um, certain butterflies for example um, the red admiral I think feeds on their caterpillar feeds on nettles so we need to have nettles so leave an area for wildlife basically and see see what comes up it's, and should people be afraid of bees like when they see them coming they kind of run you know type thing no not at all um, bees are busy you know busy bees their their aim in life is to get 
pollen and nectar and that's all they want to do if if you grab a bee then yes it's going to protect itself a bee will not come to you with an aim to sting you if one's near you just keep calm and it should go away so don't worry about that to learn more about the importance of bee conservation, visit Irish Bee Conservation or the Pollinator Plan online or check the show notes of this episode. And we're stronger when together. Ours to Protect, brought to you by C103, the IBI, and funded by the Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out ours to protect.ie for more info. And thanks to Barry for that. Those bees are so important. And yesterday we were talking with Frederica Hoffner uh, of Ralph's uh, Country House in Baltimore and she was talking about the bananas that they are growing. Well, I had an email in uh, from Cindy saying, Patricia, on bananas, my dad worked on the tugs in Cork Harbour and he uh, often brought in the banana boats. He was often given boxes of bananas as a thank you present. They were always green and we used to put them into a black plastic bag in the hot press to ripen them. They were absolutely delicious. Thank you for that. That's Cindy emailing Cork today at c103.ie. Coming up, it's Friday, so Mark will talk movies to us. We're also going stateside talking to that family who found the message in a bottle. We're trying to track down who Aoife is, who put the message in the bottle back in uh, 2019. And we'll also hear how some of the Leaving Cert students are reacting to today's results. So all of that and more. Now, let me look at some of your comments uh, coming in. And I think I have, uh, do I have a voice or from um, some of the Leaving Cert uh, students. No, we don't. Sorry. OK. All right. Some of your commentary coming in uh, to us on uh, petrol prices, Percy. We mentioned petrol prices and we are hoping, I was speaking with John Paul uh, in the office um, earlier this morning, we are hoping to do something on the rising cost of petrol and diesel in advance of that excise duty going up next week on the 1st of September, which means while people are already bemoaning the prices that they're paying for their petrol and diesel, it's going to be even higher next week. And that's without any adjustment made by the garages themselves, depending on how much they buy in their petrol and diesel at. John says, Patricia, rises in petrol petrol and diesel home heating oil and coal is going to cripple families this winter, particularly pensioners. Workers and pensioners now need a 20 euro increase in the budget at least and that will allow people to just stand still and maintain purchasing uh, power. Uh, They'll be lucky if they get half of that, says uh, John. And for a lot of people, John, waiting until the October budget, some will say that's even too late. They need increases now. And Micah says, Patricia, on petrol and diesel prices, all these increases are absolutely crazy. And don't forget that in the budget Budget in October, they will add more via the carbon tax, which will make a bad situation even worse. Clearly, greed at government level and the Green Party agenda are crippling people as they simply go about their daily lives. And of course, those who live in rural areas are worst affected as usual, says Michael. Yeah, because if you're living in a rural area, your car is not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. So whenever petrol and diesel goes up, that absolutely is always an ongoing issue for those in rural areas who don't have access to a decent public uh, transport. Hi Patricia, I'm just back from a walk on my local beach. Six dogs running loose. Now all of them had owners with them but they were off the lead and allowed to run uh, loose. I was following them and watching them and would you believe not one of them 
tidied up after their dog when they did their business. I regularly see people arrive here on my local beach and they just leave the dogs off for a run. It's as if they bring them to the beach to do their business and off they go home. Why oh why is this allowed to uh, happen now? We're always talking about dog fouling and we're and um, I, I don't know whether I got through it or not but I, I was looking at a piece during the week on the number of dog fouling prosecutions and it's a tiny, tiny few are actually prosecuted but the problem is that the dog warden has to see the dog perform the business has to see the owner walk away before they can hand, hand out a fine and we simply don't have enough dog wardens and even if we did you know just having what we can't have them lurking in the bushes and of course if somebody sees a dog warden or a litter warden around you can be guaranteed they'll clean after their, their animals then I think more than anything, we've just, it's its responsibility. We have to, I, and I don't know how we do it. I mean, I'm sick to the teeth of talking about it as a topic, but we just have to get through to people that if you have a dog, and, and like a lot of people are very responsible and when they take their dogs out for a walk, and I regularly see very responsible owners and they have their poop bags with them and they clean up and I know people don't like carrying it around with them and there's the, they point the finger blame at the council saying we need more bins around the place to dispose of them. But just unfortunately if people who really don't care, you know, they'll bring their dogs to the beach and they just leave them off and they don't care and they're not going to clean up after them and it always worries me when I see it happening at a beach because beach are areas that children congregate and you'd have children if we get a fine weekend or a fine spell of weather you have the children down buckets and spades and playing in the sand and of course children's fingers go into eyes go into their mouth and it can cause all kinds of problems uh, for children but you know rather than saying it, rather than saying it's the council and it's the litter warden and we need more dog, dog wardens out and about we just need to get the message through to people that if you have an animal please clean up after them. I mean, was it only this week we had the National Council for the Blind uh, um, uh, with their clear their footpath campaign and that's to do with obstacles because people who are visually impaired at walking suddenly is an obstacle in their way but one of their one the members for the National Council for the Blind uh, when they surveyed their own members they cited dog fouling I think it's the third most common problem that they have when they're out walking they'll either walk into it because obviously they can't see it or people who are on a long cane if you watch anyone with a long cane they're swooping across the footpath if there's poo there they're, they're, they're not seeing it it ends up on the cane and then of course when they go home or if they go into a shop or a business and they fold up their cane they have to fold it up in their hand and they don't know what's on the end of it it's absolutely disgusting for somebody with a visual impairment talk to anyone who's weeding a buggy or a pram and you don't see it and you bring it into into the house it's just yeah we just it's to try to get the message across to people that if you're going to use gorgeous beaches that we have with your dogs and you know we, and we want dogs to get their exercise please please will you just clean up after them now seeing as the leaving set results are out today. An interesting piece that I spotted uh, during the week because obviously the leaving are out today and young people are counting up their points. They've got to wait for the first round of the CAO offers which will be out next week particularly the ones that want to go on to third level education. But third level education isn't for everyone. So I saw the plans are afoot to try to make construction a more attractive career for women. And this is coming out from a government report. The report says that young girls and women remain an untapped resource and many tend not to consider a career in the construction industry as they view the sector through the narrow lens of on-site work and some females think that they wouldn't be able to do it because it would all be on-site. So the government are going to launch an action plan 
which is going to encourage people to work in the construction sector. Now, obviously, they're going to be encouraging uh, young men as well as young women, but they're going to make a concerted effort to try and say to women, would you consider a job in the construction uh, sector. And the reason that the state has to do it, we don't have enough workers in the construction sector. The state are hoping to build a minimum of 35,000 homes every year over the next uh, decade. And of course, added to that, there's the additional target of nearly half a million homes that have to be retrofitted in that same period. And we literally don't have enough workers. So we need to to do something to get more workers into the construction uh, sector. And actually also it has emerged from the Department of Further and Higher Education uh, report. The construction industry have a very negative impression of unemployed people. And I was thinking, what is this all about? And they're actually questioning their worth ethic. And that's obviously due to the current employment rates. We are at, if not already there this month, at full employment. Once we get to 4% unemployed, we're deemed at a full employment. Some 50,000 new entrants are needed to move into the construction sector between now and the end of this decade, 2030. And we, we need that, that. that's the minimum we need in order to meet those government's housing and retrofit targets that I mentioned. But there's a problem because we have full employment due to the booming economy. So we need to encourage people, either whatever career they're in, that they might move and look at construction instead. But the report said they obviously interviewed employers and employers have this negative impression. If somebody turns up interested in the construction sector, interested in maybe taking on a, a trade, if they've been unemployed for a certain period of time, they may be overlooked because a number of employers questioned will question their work ethic and application of people who are unemployed, particularly given the buoyant labour market. We have an unemployment rate of uh, 4%. So we're pretty much at full employment, the report says. So you would have to ask yourself, this is some of the employers, if someone is unemployed when the economy is booming, do they really want to work? Or are they the type of person that you want to invest your time training if they're not going to last? And the report says new entrants uh, may be a combination of workers currently employed seeking to upskill or they may be job seekers who wish to pursue, uh, pursue a new career in building and retrofitting. But it isn't it interesting that some of some employers say that when they advertise for positions, if somebody comes along and says, oh, I've been unemployed for a number of years, some employers will think, hmm, what kind of a work ethic do you have at a time when there are so many jobs and there have been uh, so many jobs. So I was looking at the live register. Now, the last figures I have, these are not the most up to date, uh, but these were the ones at the start of the summer. I think it was by the end of uh, June. And we were looking at and they've definitely gone down since because um, we were looking at figures of... um, 182,000 people unemployed. That was in June. But when you dig into the figures, uh, trying to look at the figures for uh, the long term unemployed, there are in up now what's deemed long term unemployed? It's people who are on the live register for at least one year or more. And there was, um, 
66,000 people who were on the live register for at least uh, a year. Uh, and in some, no, not all, some employers. But I thought I hadn't heard that. And I'm, I'm wondering if any employer, uh, I'd love to hear from an employer who would actually admit that, that when people come before them for a job, if you're looking at them and you see that they've been employed for one, two, three years, do you stop and question why have they been employed for so long, particularly when we had a buoyant labour market. I think it's the first time I've ever seen it in print where employers have actually said, no, I prefer to look at somebody who's either in a job and wants to move and come come work for me or, you know, or somebody who recently lost their job. Your thoughts welcomed on that. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text our WhatsApp to uh, 0862. 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. If you're out and about in Bantry today, keep a lookout for the Bantry branch of St. Vincent de Paul. They're holding a flag day today. They're in Bantry Town and they're also at Cronin's Ballylicky. All funds raised, of course, will benefit the local community. There's a Cayley set in the Marion Hall in Bannon Hassock. Tonight, dancing is from 9.30, admission €10 and it does include teas. Kildallery Bingo is on tonight at 8. That's in the store at the Creamery uh, Yard. The jackpot, €2,250. There's a table quiz in the winning post in Rosmore tonight at uh, 9 o'clock. All proceeds are going to the West Cork Rapid Response. It is €10 per person. And the um, Timelig Festival Bingo, that is on tonight. That's got a half nine start and a fantastic raffle. All are uh, welcome. And a history of Canturk Golf Club. Now, it's been written by Tony Walsh. It'll be launched by Jim Long. Now, Jim Long is the president of Golf Ireland, but also in attendance to help out with the launch is well-known author Alice Taylor. That's on next Sunday afternoon at half past three. It's in Cantor Golf Club. Now, admission is by ticket only and tickets are available from any of the committee members or you can call 85 87009 Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at C103.ie. Today on C103. A message in a bottle written by an Irish girl simply named Aoife has been found on a beach in the US and the finders now are on a mission to try to connect with the writer of the letter. Frank Bulger from Wildwood, New Jersey uh, joins me on the programme uh, to tell me about the finding of this bottle. Good, mor- uh, good afternoon to you, Frank. It's probably very early morning. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I, I'm I'm very good, and and we really appreciate you taking our call. Now I need to take you back to uh, the middle of the month, seventeenth of August. Tell me what happened. Well, we went to the beach. We go to the beach almost every weekend, and we were down for the week on vacation. And every day we go to the beach. We set our chairs up, set our blanket out, and then we go for a walk along the beach. And typically during our walk, we pick up trash. So on the way back, my wife happened to notice in a clump of seaweed a little bottle, and we were getting ready to throw it out. My wife says, oh, no, there's a note in it. So we got back to our blanket, 
and looked at the bottle again. We couldn't get the note out. So when we got back to the house, we had to use tweezers and really had to work at it to get the note out of the bottle. And that's when we discovered what the note said. And what, it's a little standard glass bottle? Yeah, tiny little bottle. And, just, and But no water, you know, no water got into it. There was a little... No. And, and do, do you have the note there to tell us what the note said? It says, greetings from Ireland. I have thrown this bottle into the sea for someone to find another day. Maybe it's traveled down to Africa or up to Iceland. I won't know if someone found this, but I hope it is found. Signed, Aoife, note writer, and dated July 17th, 2019. God, 2019, it was before the pandemic. It was a different world and everything. That's, when you That's what I said. Yeah. I said it was before COVID. Yeah, yeah. God, a little, a little did Aoife know what the world, how the world was going to change uh, after putting her bottle in, in, into the sea. God bless her. Uh, okay, but no, um, no phone number, no email, no address, no nothing. No. And then, you know, we, there's a magazine in Wildwood called The Sun by the Sea, and we're good friends with the lady who publishes that, and we showed it to her, and when she put it up on her Facebook account, that's when it got shared all over the place. North Wildwood has a huge Irish-American population. So then a lot of the people in North Wildwood started sharing it over to Ireland. And then I contacted Irish Central, and it just snowballed from there. And has, have obviously Aoife hasn't come forward yet. Has, has any Aoife come forward, do you? Not at this point. No. We're hoping soon, though. Okay, and it is a hand, it wasn't typed, it is a handwritten note? Yes. Okay, so... Yes, if you if you went to the Wildwood Sun by the Sea on Facebook, she has pictures of the note and everything on there. Give me that again, Wild, I, Wildwood Sun by the Sea? Yes. Okay, well, we'll, we'll check that out. I'd, I'd, I'd like to ha- have, have a look at it. Interesting that there's a lot of, you say, a lot of Irish Americans in, in Wildwood. Uh, North Wildwood especially, it's been a hub for Irish Americans and we have a huge Irish festival at the end of September here. And I have to say, Frank, with a name like Bulger, you've got to have Irish connections. Yes, my family came to the US in, I think it was around 1860. Do you know from what part? uh, uh, Carlo. 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 Okay. Have you ever been over here? No, not yet. My uncle was over. He went back to see the original homestead. But no, I've never made it across the pond yet. And is the homestead still standing? This was 20 years ago, and it was. Wow, he showed wow. me pictures of it. Wow, wow. Now, you see, what, what I'm, uh, we're a Cork-based uh, radio station, and if you look at the map, we've got a lot of, of coastline here uh, in Cork. And I'm hoping that Aoife was from West Cork or on a beach in West Cork when she put it into the sea, because we had a famous politician from West Cork who once said that his home in West Cork, while it was further from the houses of the Irish Parliament, it was closest to the White House. So I so I'm hoping that this bottle went in somewhere in West Cork and went across 
to you in, in Wildwood. So we're putting a call out for any Aoife that this rings a bell with or if you've got an Aoife in your household, ask her, did she happen to put a message in a bottle back in 2019 and pop it into the sea? But I suppose, Frank, it's it's a cautionary tale as well that if you are going to put a message in a bottle, to to please put some kind of contact details on it. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? But it, I don't know. Maybe she just wanted to bring joy to people. I I don't know why. But hopefully when we talk to her, It'll be we great. can find those answers. Have you ever put a bottle into the sea and sent a message away? No, <laughs> but we were thinking about putting a new message in and sending it out, but we're not sure yet. Yeah, I do, do. Do something like that, Frank, and put your email address on it so that people can contact you. We'll keep in contact with you, uh, Frank, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that Aoife does uh, surface. It'll be, it'll be lovely if we could uh, make a connection between the two of you. But in the meantime, thank you for that, and thank you for taking our call this morning. Oh, no problem. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Frank uh, Bulger there uh, from uh, Wildwood in New Jersey. Put on the call out, please, for any Aoife that you may know who may have put that message in a bottle. 0818-103-103. Ireland versus South Africa, Stade de France. This uh, match is down for September uh, the 23rd and we are hoping to give somebody what has been described as the ultimate rugby experience from Monday morning. You can get all the details with Ken uh, Tobin at 8.15. The prize is return flights. There's three nights accommodation in beautiful Paris and there's also gold category match tickets and these match tickets come with hospitality to get you to see Ireland versus South Africa. You can listen here to win your way Monday from 8.15 on C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. C103's Irish Sunday is the big show on your radio. Sunday mornings from 10. Four hours of all-time favourites from Michael English to Claudia Buckley. Mary Black to Declan Nurney. And the High Kings to Louise Morrissey. It's Cork's greatest hits, guaranteed. And everyone is Irish. Join us Sunday mornings from 10am on C103. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. We've been thinking about the Leaving Cert students who picked up their results this morning. We sent John Joe and Orlo Orla from the C103 Street Fleet out on the streets to speak with some of the Leaving Cert students this afternoon who have received their uh, results. So Leaving Cert results today, guys. How do you feel? Yeah, I'm delighted. Um, yeah, I'm over the moon. All good. And obviously it was your first big state exam today. So how do you feel having worked so hard for it and having done your first state exam? I suppose, look, the teachers always said that the work would pay off. So I suppose today is kind of proof of that. Yeah, and there's definitely a huge relief with it. Um, and yeah, especially like Michael said, like just putting in the work and seeing it pay off. It's nice. Like, And going forward after this, what are your aims for after your education? Well, I suppose right now, just for college, I'm hoping to do engineering in UCC. Um, and then after that, who knows? But, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward now. If I get my course now, I'll be delighted. And then uh, I'll just go on from there. First hurdle. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, and I'm, I want to do a biochem in UCC. And then uh, I'd like to do biotech then after that. Fantastic. So, yeah, I'd love that. And big plans in store for tonight, lads? Yeah, yeah. I'd say all the Cork will be out tonight uh, in town and stuff. So uh, we'll be meeting up with our friends, I'd say, at 6 p.m. And then just, you know... 
staying out till 2am or whatever and uh, yeah we'll just see what happens it'll be, un- it'll be probably an unreal night yeah, now we'll definitely see, we'll see where the night takes us so. Yeah. <laughs> so are you happy with the result today? oh delighted absolutely delighted yeah yeah 625 so you can't complain you know yeah brilliant congratulations yeah. and is there anything you were like really happy with or surprised with? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I didn't. I wouldn't have put myself in this bracket at all. But uh, it's just, um, it's a great feeling to to achieve it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. And what's the plan from here? Where are you want? Where are you wanting to head from here? Uh, hopefully into, well, in college in UCC, math science would be the would be the dream. Yeah. So that'll be happening in September. Amazing. Yeah. And any plans for tonight? Any big plans? Yeah, where are you heading? Heading to town. I'd say we haven't picked out a spot yet, but. Um, It'll be, it'll be a good night, I'd say. Wherever the wind takes you. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Roll with the punches. So were you happy with your results today? Yeah, delighted, absolutely. Delighted. And was there anything that surprised you in your results or you were really happy with? Um, I'm happy with Irish, obviously, because for me that's probably the most difficult subject. Um, and English and French as well. Like, kinda, the languages are a bit harder, so I was happy with those uh, to do so well. Cool. And what's the plan from here? Do you have any college plans or anything you're hoping for specifically? Yeah, hopefully I'll do um, engineering in UCC. Um, that's top of the CAO. Um, so I'm from Cork and I'd like to stay in Cork. So I'm looking forward to that. Any plans for tonight? Any big plans? Yeah, just meet up with the, <laughs> the lads in town. and um, Celebrations? Yeah. Yeah, very happy now today, yeah. Perfect. And is there anything that like surprised you or any results you're really happy with that you got? Uh, there was two subjects I didn't think I'd do well in, but I did quite well in them so I'm very happy with that result yeah fantastic and any advice for leaving search for next year I just pull through it it's going to look dark and bleak it's going to feel like it's going to drag on but it is very quick and it will pull through very quickly trust me so just keep on it any plans for tonight any celebrations a few points with the family no yeah grandparents as well so be very fun now tonight (laughs) stunning are you happy with the results you got today yeah I'm very happy Uh, chuffed yeah is there anything you're like surprised at or really happy with uh, a result you got in particular? I suppose the, the grades I got in languages and, and music and stuff, I'm very happy with that. I put work into it, so I'm happy that I got the result at the end. What's the plan after today? Where do you want to head? Um, hoping to do music in uh, MTU, so kind of popular music course there. Oh. It's a very good course, so I'm happy to do it, yeah. And any advice for anyone doing um, their leaving cert next year? I suppose it's just, you know, it's, you know, when it gets hard, like it's, you know, you do come out the other end and it is worth it, depending on what you want to do. Um, so you just kind of have to try and figure out that and then it'll, it'll all be over soon, I suppose. Yeah. You know what I mean? And any plans tonight? Any celebrations? I suppose go out with a few friends, have a few uh, few small ones or something. <laughs> <laughs> OK, congratulations. And, and thank you to those students who take time out to talk to uh, John, Joe and Orla from the Street Fleet. And somebody by text saying, it's a pity, Patricia, every year when the Leaving Cert results come out, all the coverage is based on courses that will feed into the industrial sectors, while the arts hardly ever gets a mention, despite the fact that life as an artist is far more fulfilling than working at a desk all day or in a factory for some big pharma company. Well, one of the Voxers, one of the young people there on that particular Vox Pop said they're doing music. So that is part of the arts. Thank you for your text to 0862103103. Mark Malone uh, joins me. Good afternoon to you, Mark. Um, if I press the button, we might be able to hear him. Good afternoon, Mark. Hi, yeah. Uh, you're very welcome. OK, uh, you saw two movies for us this week. One is Blue Beetle and the other is The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Mm. OK, let's start with a trailer from Blue Bottle. Yeah. This is going to protect me, right? No, no. This I'm is crazy. I can't fly. Superman can fly. <laughs> My life was never the same. 
Blue Bottle he's a superhero whether he likes it or not he might be a Blue Bottle but I think he's <laughs> relatively known as a Blue Beetle to be better. Oh, Blue Beetle. Am I calling a Blue Bottle? Sorry. Yes, he's an insect as opposed yeah. to a, a, a fly. Blue yeah. Sorry, yeah, okay. It's the Blue Beetle, yeah. This okay. is from the DC Universe. And um, the good thing about this film is then, and I was thinking about it afterwards, I thought, do you know something? The problem is with a lot of these movies in the DC Universe and also with the Marvel Universe is that you would have had to have seen movies that kind of came before because they're nearly always kind of linked in kind of some way. Mm. Uh, this one isn't. This is very much a kind of a standalone kind of a movie, and uh, which is really, really good to see. The problem with the film is that uh, a lot of what you see on screen you've seen uh, so many times before uh, even though funny enough this character of Blue Beetle has been around since the early 30s I mean it was one of the very very early comic uh, book uh, Kenny heroes and um, and for even a lot of comic book uh, fans they even when the, the the film was about to be released even they went who? Yeah. We know nothing about this Blue Beetle even though he's been around for a very very long time uh, so basically the story is is that uh, this young Hispanic boy and his family and uh, and I read the reason why I say that is because the Hispanic part of his uh, story is very very important to this film. It's the very, very first Hispanic kind of superhero that we've yeah. seen on screen. And uh, and so that's an important note, and that's why I kind of re- reference it. And his family are, are, are you know, they're having, uh, they're, they're down on their luck. They're finding it very, very difficult living in America. They are, uh, the, the parents and the grandmother are immigrants and finding it very, very difficult. Um, so there are very, a lot of references to them and their background, but it's never kind of driven home. You don't feel kind of annoyed or patronized by it at any time. In fact, uh, George Lopez, who's terrific in the movie as uh, the father in this film, he's funny and also uh, heartbreaking as well. He makes this, he has this one terrific line where he says, look, it's very easy to cross a border the next 20 years are very, very tough. Yeah. And the, the family are finding it uh, so very, very tough. So many people will identify with that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the young man decides, look, he's got to do something about it and he goes for this job at a company which is being run by Susan Sarandon. Unfortunately, um, the, um, one of the staff of the, um, this company doesn't like the way in which this, this scarab, it's called a scarab, which is a beetle, as you know. And uh, this is incredibly powerful, this piece of equipment. And um, unfortunately... The, um, Susan Sarandon wants to use it for a military purpose. So uh, this young woman gives the scarab to this young man and uh, he brings it home to his family. They all sit around going, what is this? And they open it up even though he was told not to open it up. It is the scarab. But the problem is that this scarab attaches itself to this young man and turns him into a superhero. And um, 
from then on, it's very, very similar to kind of that whole sequence when he's kind of changing into uh, the Beatle. Uh, is very similar to, let's say, uh, Iron Man. When Iron Man first gets his powers, he goes right up in the air. And throughout the film, unfortunately, this is if if I have a problem with it, is that we've seen an awful lot of this before. You're watching it, going, "Well, that's the bit from uh, uh, from Iron Man. That's the bit from Ant Man. Uh, that's the bit from Captain America." And that's at fault. But the best thing about this film is that, and it reminds me of the very first Ant Man because um, DC didn't really have a particularly great kind of um, faith in this movie. They were actually going to put it on HBO Max. They realized that it's actually pretty good and entertaining, so they decided to release it to cinemas. Unfortunately, they released it to cinemas during Barbenheimer, and ah. that's when one of the problems. So unfortunately, even though it had a budget of 120 million, I think it's only gotten about 50 million back. And also, I think there's also this kind of whole superhero fatigue thing which is happening out there. Yeah, there's people just too thought, many. And just yeah. people thought, do we really want to see this? The thing about this film is that it reminds me of the first uh, Ant-Man in the, sen- in the sense that it's a smaller movie which is character driven. And that's what, and you know, that for me, that's what these movies and this, that's when these movies are at their very, very best. And it's always the origin stories of all these movies that I always like because they're always the family and the personal and the human dramas. Like, for example, when Iron Man first gets, uh, you know, his suit, when Ant-Man changes because, again, it's about him as a person changing and, and how this change of kind of lifestyle uh, affects him. And it's the same here. And these are the movies that I tend to like, whereas the sequels just tend to just get really existential and silly and, and just, just focus on the and super, focus on the special effects yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. So this is about a family and a human family and 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 the drama of that and how this affects them. And it's funny at times. It's it's a bit repetitive as we've seen before. There are times when it's a little bit tough. I mean, when he changes, for example, into the Beatle, that's quite an extraordinary scene. And I get the impression that maybe they were looking for a 15 cert at one stage, but then thought, no, we can't do that. Because there are some scenes which are a little bit kind of a little bit more explicit than you would kind of think. Although there's nothing here really to kind of worry too many people. I think it's a 12 accompanied film, which I think is about right. Um, so it's a shame that it got kind of caught up in the whole Barbenheimer thing. It's a shame that, uh, you know, that people are kind of maybe slightly kind of um, have had too much of the superhero stuff, uh, you know, on, on in screens for quite some time. And maybe, you know, they got tired of that. And it's a shame because I'd recommend it. It's I actually movie. think it's really, really, it's a good yeah. movie. And, it's really and entertaining. when I was looking at the cast, it's, it's good to see all the Hispanic actors and actresses. Exactly, uh, yes. looking at all the surnames. It's an important film great. for yeah, that community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Blue Beetle, my apologies for mispronouncing <laughs> it. I should look at what's in front of me. Mark it out of 10? I give it 7. 7 out of 10, yeah. okay. And then your second one is, <laughs> is an unusual title. It's The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. What yes. What do we have here? Well, I saw the trailer to it some time ago and I presumed that it was one of these British movies that I've reviewed quite a lot over the last uh, few years. Uh, the British movies, which are basically like the little man kind of, you know, fighting against the establishment. We've seen quite a lot of those movies over the last few years and they're usually kind of fun. They're uh, good movies. Know, like Eddie the yeah. Eagle and, and, and movies, yeah. like, you know, movies like this. And they're really, really entertaining and light and fluffy and, uh, and, uh, and entertaining. So I presumed that this was going to be very much like that. I mean, the, pra- the trailer does kind of hint that it's going to be very similar to that but in fact it isn't I mean this film has uh, as much more depth than that and really really caught me by surprise it's from a book by from Rachel Joyce who uh, has written the screenplay here so apparently those who like the book very rarely do people who love a book you know love the movie because they say it's never as good as yeah. the book but apparently it's very true to the book because obviously the author has written the screenplay here and it's about this man called Harold Harold Fry he's an ordinary man um, you know he's um, at the later part 
of his life. You know, uh, he's married to um, Maureen, played here by Penelope Wilton. And um, and life is just getting them by. And then one day he gets a letter uh, from um, a woman that he used to know at work way back, something like 30, 40 years pr- previously. And um, she says that she's dying of cancer. Oh. And um, so he decides to write back to her, much to the kind of annoyance of his wife. Um, so he goes to post the letter. Uh, but he finds that he can't post it. So he keeps kind of going to different post boxes throughout the town because he just feels as though he can't do it. Then he decides, he meets this young woman who says, well, my uh, grandmother uh, had cancer and uh, we gave her hope. We basically said, look, you know, have hope. And therefore, the hope will, uh, you know, um, help you to live a little bit longer. And from that, he gets this idea where he decides, well, he's going to walk the 500 miles to the hospice where this woman uh, is uh, staying. And uh, he decides to do it straight away with his clothes and his shoes and his jumper and his jacket on his back. back. And he decides to go and he goes off, much to the the annoyance of his wife, as you you can understand. And he just starts walking. And at one stage he does ring... The unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Exactly. Uh, Because then he rings the hospital and he says, look, tell her that I'm coming. And this um, will keep her alive. Um, but obviously the walk, it's 500 miles, it's going to take him a number of weeks to do yeah. it. And so by doing that, he feels as though she will remain alive with the hope that uh, they will meet again and talk because they haven't met and spoken in quite some time. Uh, along the way, um, the, the story gets out and more and more people kind of arrive and take part in the journey, much to his annoyance, because to him, uh, you know, they, they has nothing to do with his story and, and, uh, and his pilgrimage. At one stage, he turns to them and says, I don't want you here. And she said, uh, the woman who was on the, the walk with her, and she said, we need you. We need you. You know what I mean? It becomes like a messiah almost. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Much well, to, yeah. But it's, it, there's some wonderful moments. Uh, apparently the journey he takes is a real journey. Uh, he tends to stay off the, the, the motorways quite a lot. So a lot of it are kind of back roads of England, uh, beautifully directed. The cinematography, cinematography is fabulous. And he begins to enjoy that life. And at one stage he posts back his, um, his credit cards, for example, because he doesn't want to stay in B&Bs anymore. Initially he does. And then he starts kind of living in fields, starts washing in rivers, starts eating off berries and begins to love Love this because all of a sudden he has a direction in his life which he never has. The film also has, and this is where the film gets a little bit dark, and that's kind of fun and, and sweet. Uh, but we do get flashbacks. We get flashbacks of um, the relationship he had with his son, who unfortunately um, had abuse problems, and that is a part of his life which has kind of created a, a, almost a kind of a kind of a scar in his heart, and he finds that very very difficult to kind of um, come kind to of deal and come with, to terms with. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why also he's doing this pilgrimage because he feels as though he can raise that kind of part of his life uh, from that as well. Whilst at the same time, Penelope Wilton is at home screaming and shouting down the phone to him going, what are you doing? Because there are hints too, at, you know, um, through flashbacks of his relationship with this, wo- this woman, which might not be quite what you think. Let me point that uh, out as well. So you're guessing and thinking and thinking all the time. And um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful film. I love the concept of this 
think you will love it. I yeah. really do. Now, it, it doesn't shy away from the, the substance abuse and the difficulty he had with his son. Okay. That's quite harrowing. So keep that in mind. There are a few scenes like that. And in the sorry, film. this wasn't based on a true story or anything. It's not based on a true story, no, no but okay. it's, it's kind of very similar with, to what we've seen before. There was a wonderful movie with David Lynch with um, Richard Farnsworth uh, some years ago about this man who decides to visit his uh, ailing uh, brother. And he does so by uh, on, a, on, a, on a lawnmower, if you might remember. Okay. Uh, there was a film with Timothy Spall called The Last Boss, which was quite similar. So it's a similar story that we've okay. seen before. But it's beautifully done. It's beautifully realised. Jim Broadbent, uh, Penelope Wilton, you can't get better than those two. They are both fabulous in the movie. And uh, I would certainly recommend it. OK, somebody describes it as a small movie with a big heart. Indeed. OK, the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Mark it out of 10 I'll first, it eight. please. 8 out of 10. All right, listen, thank you for that. And uh, have a lovely week. And we'll chat to you again next Friday. That's where I leave you for today and see this week. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards will ease you into the weekend this afternoon from one. And I'll talk to you Monday morning at 10 o'clock. And I'm Patricia Messenger. Good afternoon on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.